Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Frank Herbert wrote a famous science fiction novel called Dune. And it was the first big book I read as an adolescent, and so it's always stuck in my mind. At the beginning of the book, uh, the hero of the book, young Paul Atreides, is sent to live with his family on this faraway desert planet called Arrakis. They have to leave and go and live there. But before they leave and go to this other world, his teachers, Paul's teachers, give him information about what that world is like. And they tell him that on this desert planet, there's this substance, this spice called melange that's all over the place. It's a source of energy and power. It's, it's the, the, the spice that aliens use to fold time, but you don't need to know about that. But what they tell him is it's everywhere. It's not just that you go out and mine this stuff, but once they started mining it, it pervaded everything. So the food that you eat has this spice in it, and the air that you breathe is filled with this stuff. And as a result of that constant exposure, the people on the planet, their eyes have turned blue, not, not just blue, but, but all blue, like there's no white in their eyes as a result. And he gets all of this information and is able to kind of think about all these things before he ever sets foot in that world. He knows going in, why the people are the way they are. He understands how the world works because his teachers have told him. Now, I'm sure if he had grown up on that planet, he might have assumed this was just the way things are. Like people's eyes are always blue. This is just nature. But because he has stood outside that world and he's had someone to instruct him and to explain to him why things are the way they are, when he arrives, he understands the difference between the, the way things are on this desert world and the way that they have become as a result of this all-pervasive substance. Wouldn't it be nice if, like Paul Atreides, you had gotten a briefing before you were sent into this world? If your teachers had taken you aside and said, we're going to send you to this place, it's called Earth. But it's really strange, this earth. And there's some things you need to understand about the way it works before we just set you loose. It would have been nice to be uh, forewarned about some of the things we were going to find in this world. Because we've only ever lived here. And as a result, this is all we know. And it's very hard to distinguish between the way things are and the way they've become as a result of the influences that are in this world. In, in Herbert's novel, The Spice, as you can probably figure out, is a metaphor for oil. You know, it's a substance in the desert that changes everything. But I think for us, the metaphor serves really well as, as a metaphor for sin. Paul has revealed to us already in the book of Romans, sin is everywhere. It's in everything. It's in the food that we eat. It's in the air that we breathe. And as a result of the sin that is everywhere, we have changed. This world has changed. And it is hard to see sometimes. What is nature? What is the way God created things? And, and what is the result of sin? What has happened 
because of the fact that sin has corrupted everything. We didn't get a briefing before we came into the world, but now in Romans 5, we're getting it after the fact. Paul is explaining to us how earth works, what it means to live in this world, and how this world has been corrupted by this all-pervasive influence of sin, which has resulted in death. Therefore, he begins the analogy, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and the natural thing to do is to transition immediately to Christ, but he doesn't do that because he's raised the question of sin, and there's some things about sin that he wants you to understand. He wants to remind you of before you go forward. That's where we find ourselves in verse 13. He needs to tell us more about sin. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam's sin opened the door to death, and sin and death spread to all men, all humanity. It's interesting, when we read the book of Genesis, reading it as we do as people who've lived in this world all our lives with no other frame of reference, we read the genealogies, and it's a record of life. Because one generation is born after the next. But when you think about it, these genealogies also work the other way. Aren't they a testament to death? Aren't they a testament to death? Because this one begets that one and then dies. There's a legacy of death that goes back to the beginning because of sin. And that's what Paul is telling us here. But it does raise a question which has to do with the law, the Mosaic law. If the problem goes all the way back to the beginning, then you start to wonder, what's the point of the law? In Romans 2 and 3, Paul went to great lengths to assure us that keeping the law, the Mosaic law, law law-keeping would not justify you, that there's no path to salvation through obedience open to us. In Romans 4, he demonstrated that Abraham was justified by faith, not works. Now, this actually happened more than 400 years before the law was even given. The, the, the way of salvation was already clear long before Moses came down from Mount Sinai with those tablets. And now, Paul is taking us back even farther. If you want to visualize this, the people that Paul is talking about, their framework is, you might call it law and gospel. Right, Moses and Christ. That's the analogy that they have front and center. That there's a law. If you don't keep the law, then you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, then you need grace in order to save you. And in Romans, what Paul is doing is he's leaving the cross in place, but he keeps moving the other side of the spectrum back. So he takes it from Moses and he stretches it back to Abraham and says, no, 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 no. If you want to understand, you have to go back beyond the law beyond Moses. And now that he's done that, he's going back even farther and stretching. It's not enough. It's not enough to grasp the the significance of Abraham's justification by faith. We've now got to go all the way back to Adam, to Adam, and understand the nature of the transgression. If you want to understand the nature of salvation, you really have to understand the nature of the problem. 
law of Moses was given long after sin entered the world. But there is a, a principle that Paul refers to in our text. Sin is not counted where there is no law. How can you measure sin if there's no law? So how is it even possible to measure sin before the law was given if there was no law against which to measure it? And yet, we know that sin was being counted because of the reign of death. Because we're told that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And death, as we learn in Romans 6.23, death is a consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. So if people are dying between Adam and Moses, then there's some kind of a law that is being broken, some kind of a law that is being transgressed, even if it's not the Mosaic law. So the question is, what law? What law is being violated that results in all of this death? One way to answer the question is to say, well, it must be natural law. There's this unwritten law, a law that's evident in nature. God revealing himself in all creation, and maybe that's what Paul has in mind here, that even though the written law has not been given, there is a law written on the heart. Maybe that's what's being violated here. There are some problems with answering the question that way, because Paul makes a point of saying that death reigned even over those whose transgression was not like Adam's. In other words, people died even if they hadn't broken a law willfully in the way that Adam did. Theologians, when they interpret this, will typically point you to the death of unborn children, that there are those who die without ever having willfully done anything at all. There's no way that you could compare their actions to Adam's actions and say, well, everybody who does what Adam did dies like Adam died. They haven't done what Adam did. They haven't done anything in any understandable sense of the word. So this cannot be a natural law argument. Also, Paul's emphasis here isn't on many sins, but on one. Romans 5.16, he he makes this clear. He refers to the one trespass. So he's not talking about millions of sins which have led to death. He's talking about one transgression, one violation. The obvious conclusion about the law that's being violated is, is the command in Eden. Right? The probationary command that was given to Adam in Genesis 2.17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam did that. He transgressed. And as he did that, he acted on behalf of all of us as our covenant head. That's the significance of the analogy, the representation involved in Adam. So it's not just that Adam sets an example, and if you follow that example, then you'll get the same thing that happened to him. There's an actual transgression that we've all committed in Adam. His disobedience is an act of covenant breaking. It's not described as covenant breaking in Genesis 3, but the prophet Hosea does refer to it this way. So he talks about, Israel's disobedience in Hosea 6, 7, he says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They transgressed the covenant. Adam's sin is seen as covenantal and is representative. And Paul tells us this, that Adam is a type of the one who was to come, that he's a type of Christ. 
And specifically, the way in which he's a type of Christ is that idea of his union with his people, with his posterity. The theologian W.G.T. Shedd says, Adam, by reason of his unity with his posterity, is a type of Christ who is one with his people. So our condemnation comes not because we sinned like Adam, but because we sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 22, states it exactly that way. That's the nature of our sin. And it gives us some insights into the struggles that we face. The first insight is a philosophical insight. Don't collapse the reign of death and the realm of creation. Don't collapse the reign of death and the realm of creation. In other words, don't confuse the effects of sin with the natural order of creation. The failure to keep those two things separate, like the way God made things and the way they have become as a result of sin, is sloppy thinking, and it results in so much of the confusion that we face. If you remove the Bible's teaching of the fall, then the rest of what the Bible says about the world, about God, it won't make sense. You need to have that understanding in order to see clearly. You've heard of deism. Uh, We talk about our nation as having been founded by great Christian men. The reality is most of those men were deists. They did believe in God, but they didn't believe in the God of Scripture. They believed in a sort of rationalization of that God. Right, a, a great uh, divine providence who, like a cosmic uh, clockmaker, put everything in order and left the world ticking merrily along. Like He made it all the way that it ought to be, and then he stood back and he let it unfold as it unfolds. The problem with that view of reality is there's no explanation for sin, for depravity, for death. You look at the world as it is, and you're told that the perfect and good God made it perfectly, and everything that is, is right. And then you see what is, and you're like, how can this be right? And you've got to bend over backwards trying to justify it. This is the view that Voltaire uh, parodies in Candide, uh, his character, Dr. Pangloss, who has an explanation for why every evil thing is actually good. That's the kind of mental gymnastics that's being made fun of. And clearly that's not the biblical view of the world. The French poet Baudelaire, today's Bastille Day, so I feel like I have to have a French poet reference in there. But Baudelaire saw the problem with this view. It's like if you're telling me that a good God rules over this reality, it doesn't make sense. If God exists, he must be the devil. If a good God is superintending the world as it is, how can he really be good? Because look at what you see all around you. The problem, of course, is the world isn't the way God made it. The effects of sin are all pervasive. And it's not possible to just look at the way things are and to say, that's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. That's what's natural. Therefore, that's what's good. Because if you take that route, you'll find yourself having to justify so many unjustifiable evils. 
and convince yourselves that so many things that are abhorrent, that are terrible, are good somehow. And your philosophy ends up in knots. So don't collapse the reign of death with the realm of creation. Don't confuse the world as it is for the way things were meant to be. Always remember that the Bible teaches that sin has entered in, and it's because of sin that we see what's all around us. That's a philosophical insight. There's a practical one as well, and maybe a more important one. Um, Don't make peace with death. Don't make peace with death, and don't make peace with sin. I know we tell ourselves things like, uh, death is a natural part of life. That there's something wise about accepting this sort of, you know, birth, life, death cycle. And that if you can stoically accept death or even celebrate it in some way, that that's somehow wise. But that's a reaction to death that you have to teach yourself. It's not natural. When you're first confronted with the reality of death, you don't celebrate. You see the wrongness of it, the 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 ugliness of it. You don't accept it at all, and we shouldn't. We're guilty of making peace with death all the time. And the the best evidence is that we've made peace with sin, which leads to death. We are at peace with the reality of sin. We're okay with it. We've accepted it as the norm. But we shouldn't. As wise as it sounds to tell ourselves to err is human, the Bible says it's not. In uh, Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, a plague descends on a city in North Africa, and the plague brings a level of death to the city, uh, a, a kind of death that seems absurd and pointless and questions the philosophies of all the people who live in the city. Every character has to rationalize what it means. The heroes of the novel, because they are good existentialists, understand that there is no God, that there is no transcendent world above us. And yet, faced with the reality of evil, the interesting thing is that that neither of the two main characters make peace with it. They revolt against it. One is a doctor, one is a kind of humanitarian, and both of them in their own way resolve to fight against death, even though they know it's futile. Even though they know death will ultimately win, everyone's going to die, they dedicate their lives to the fight against death. One of them, a character named Teru, has this line where he almost sounds like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul talks about having lived a life void of offense towards God and man. And Teru says he has striven to live a life in which he makes a victim of no one. The first time I read that, I underlined it, and I'm like, I think that's the Apostle Paul. That's like a paraphrase of the Apostle Paul. It's kind of fascinating. Teru's aspiration, when he finally kind of explains himself, he asks the question, is it possible to be a saint without God? That's his aspiration. There may not be a God, but he wants to live as if there is. He wants to live as if it's still possible to be a saint. The funny thing is, 
You may disagree profoundly with the author about the existence of God, but there is something as a Christian reading that story that will resonate with you. It will strike you as deeply true because while Camus may not get his theology right, he gets his humanity right. He understands that as human beings, we shouldn't make peace with death, but should fight it. As Dylan Thomas says, we should rage against the dying of the light, not just go gentle, not just accept it. We can say that about the fight against death. It's true as well for the fight against sin, even though we often don't see that. We're told that the wages of sin is death. So there is a direct connection between your sin and your death. There's a direct connection, but that's not how we act, right? Yeah, we feel bad about our sin, and we repent when we remember that we're meant to do that. And then, you know, a lot of times we just kind of keep on doing it, and we say to ourselves, well, at least there's grace. At least there's grace. But in the process, sometimes we make peace with something that we should actually abhor, But the same gospel that proclaims forgiveness for sin also proclaims absolute intolerance for it, abhorrence for it, the likes of which we've never felt. No matter how bad you've ever felt about any bad thing you've done, you've never felt as bad as Scripture feels about sin, as Jesus feels about sin. Why is Jesus, who's so gracious, who's so loving, who's so forgiving, why is Jesus, who who has to be the most merciful person ever to have walked on the planet, how can he be such a stickler for holiness? That doesn't usually go together, right? When you think about the people that you know who are the most sort of sin-hating, they're usually rigid, kind of intolerant, you know, inflexible, not very gracious, and yet the most sin-hating person you've ever known was the most gracious and the most merciful. I think he hated sin as much as he did. He abhorred it in its every manifestation, no matter how small, because he recognized that no matter how small, every sin leads to death. Every sin leads to this, this distortion of nature. If that's true, then the question is, what was the point of the law? If the condemnation came long before the law of Moses, then why give the law at all? What was the big deal? Why was that necessary? That's the question that Paul picks up in verse 20. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the law, the Mosaic law, came in or was given in order to increase the trespass, which is kind of weird when you think about it, because if God hates sin so much, maybe he should have wanted to decrease the trespass. Rather than giving us the law in order to increase sin, maybe God should have found some way to to decrease it. Um, The Mosaic law not only gives us a better understanding of our sinfulness, it's not just that once the law is given, you realize that, oh, a lot of stuff I thought was okay is not okay. It's also that the fact of the law exacerbates the sinfulness. We know this. If you have children, you understand that, that if you want them to break the rules, the best way to do that is to make some rules. Because if you make make them, it's guaranteed they will be broken. 
The, the way, if you want perfect obedience, if you want docile children who never disobey, don't make rules. And you'll have that. Like, we understand that politically. If, if we want a, a culture that is crime-free, that's easy. We just need less laws. Because if you can't break laws, you can't be a criminal. Right? And that's typically the way we do it, because let's be honest, it is the only way you can do it in this world. Because the more law you have, the more law-breaking you will have uh, when we know about the rules, there's something in us that delights in breaking them. It feels good, gratifying to break them. The way to make something attractive is to ban it. God wanted to minimize sin. Maybe he shouldn't have given the law. Maybe he should have thought about this a little harder. Instead, God gives the law We're told to increase the trespass. It's not that God inadvertently did it. He gave the law, not realizing that this is actually the worst thing to do with humans. If only he could go back. If only he could take it back. No. He gives it purposefully in order to increase the trespass. Why does a holy God give us anything that is guaranteed to increase our sin? Well, this leads to a final insight. We'll call this a theological insight. Remember, you have to distinguish between the realm of creation and the reign of sin, and the world that God made and the effects of sin in corrupting that world. And once you see that difference, you have to fight death with your every fiber, which means fighting sin a lot more than any of us really want to. But thirdly, because of the law, Because of the increase in trespass that's come through the law, we know that that when we fight, when victory finally comes, there is no way it came through our efforts. The law increases the trespass so that when salvation comes, it's clear to everyone that it could only be by grace. And that's the connection. To people who thought their salvation could come by keeping the law, Paul demonstrates that no, because of the law, you have assurance that the only way you could possibly be saved is by grace. Because all the law did was was make you a worse sinner than you already were. There is no salvation apart from grace. The insight is a little bit like this. It, it, it Compare the law, if you want to understand the Mosaic law, compare it to the water that Elijah had poured over the altar. You remember that story in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 18? Elijah, one man up against the, the, the prophets, the priests of Baal. The two altars are set up in order to demonstrate who is the true God. The priests of Baal, despite all day long invoking Baal and, and asking for fire to be sent down, nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah comes up. He doesn't just go straight to the, the moment. He doesn't just speak the words and call down fire. Instead, he digs a trench around the altar. And he commands people to bring water and to douse the altar three times over. So much water that the ditch he's dug is full. It's there to trap the water to show how saturated this altar has become. It's a fascinating moment. And you might wonder to yourself, why does he do this? What's the point of doing this? Sometimes people will say, well, Elijah wants to make it really clear that this is God doing it, not him doing it. 
I think there's a logic to that. They didn't have Zippo lighters or matches or anything back then, but surely if fire had come down from heaven, somebody would have said, oh, no, Elijah, you know, he did this trick. I, he's figured out a way to get lightning to come down, and it's, just, it's all just, just hocus-pocus, that sort of thing. Um, there is a logic to that, but I think there's something more. It's not just that he, he's pouring the water on the altar to show that this is God doing it, but, but to show it dramatically, viscerally. But he's not making an intellectual demonstration here. He's making uh, a heart demonstration. And you see the effects of it when the event actually happens. So this is 1 Kings 18, verses 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The reason he doused the altar is so that when the fire came, there could be no doubt that it was from God. But more than that, the reason he doused the altar is so that when the fire came, there could be no doubt that it was God, and all who witnessed it would worship immediately. No contemplation, no intellectual exercise necessary. Nobody stands back and says, no, hold on a second, that was pretty wet. That was pretty wet. If it caught on fire, that must be a God thing. No, no. They witness it. They see it. They see the all-consuming fire, and they fall down, and they worship. They worship him, having seen that this came from God and God alone. That's what's happening in our salvation. That's why it's so important to see the law for what it is, because God has sent fire down. God has sent a cleansing fire to consume every corruption, consume every sin. The reign of death, the clock is ticking because Christ has come to put an end to it. Christ has come to dethrone death, to defeat it, and to inaugurate a new reign, a new kingdom. Christ ruling the beginning of the reign of grace. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul proclaims. And that's why it's so important for him in connecting Adam to Christ to pause for a moment and help us to see that the sin, the guilt that we inherited, that the condemnation, the sin and death that has been in the world from the beginning, all of that is so all-pervasive. Like water on an altar, it has saturated everything. So that if there is any salvation for this world, if there is any salvation for you and for me, then it is the Lord's doing and His alone. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.